The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. A very warm welcome this Monday morning. You're watching Squawk Box. Let's get into your headlines. Belarus orders the interception of a Ryanair jet flying over the country forcing it to land in Minsk and detaining a dissident journalist on board, sparking international condemnation. EU Commission President Ursula von der Leyen calls the move outrageous and illegal, calling for action as the European Council meeting kicks off today. Asian equities start the week mixed after the Dow closed its fourth negative week in five, and the S&P records its first consecutive weekly decline since February with inflation fears continuing to unsettle investors. Bitcoin extends its slide as Beijing cracks down on cryptocurrencies, forcing miners to shut down operations. And CNBC is launching its first ever NFT auction today. On the 10th anniversary of anchor Mark Haynes' death, we're honoring him by auctioning this famous TV moment for charity when he called the bottom of the financial crisis trillion dollars on the sidelines. There's two trillion dollars on the There's five trillion dollars. I mean, that's money that's not coming back in. Right. However, I'm going to step out on a limb here. Uh, this I is really, the big, hold on I, everyone, we've I, been waiting I for this. I think we're at a bottom. So, as I say, a very warm welcome to the programme this morning. And we start with these extraordinary events that took place over the weekend. Belarus diverted a civilian Ryanair flight on its way from Athens to Vilnius in Lithuania, making it land in Minsk, where an opposition journalist was arrested. Belarusian authorities sent a fighter jet to reroute the plane, and journalist Roman Protasevich was taken into custody. Well, the incident has drawn international condemnation with European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen, NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg and top diplomats from the UK and Germany among those calling for an investigation and potential sanctions. And meantime, Ryanair said in a statement its crew had been warned by Belarusian air traffic control of a possible security threat and that the plane was held in Minsk for around seven hours. Well, U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken said Washington was deeply concerned by Belarus's use of a military aircraft to divert the flight, saying the act endangered the lives of the 120-plus passengers on board. Blinken also called for the immediate release of the detained reporter. Well, the Lithuanian Foreign Secretary called on the EU and other international powers to impose a ban on commercial flights through Belarusian airspace. Well, first of all, I believe that uh, Belarusian uh, airspace is completely unsafe for any commercial flight. And it should be deemed uh, this not only by EU but by international community. Because now this instrument could be used for any plane crossing Belarusian airspace. Uh, and I think that it should be first and very clear answer by, by the community. If not by the community, then by EU. Uh, 
we're still in the preparation of the fourth um, sanction package, which is um, being proposed to, to the 27. I think it has to be adopted uh, immediately. Let's, uh, let's get to Darren McDowell, who is the head of Europe and principal Russia analyst at Veresk Maplecroft. Uh, Darren, I've just been looking through at uh, the Europa Zone website and looking at the EU prolonging sanctions for uh, a year until February 2022, uh, as of previously. Now, there are a whole host of sanctions against the Belarusian regime, including, of course, President Lukashenko as well. What more can the EU do in terms of putting teeth to its condemnation? Good morning to you. Good morning. Well, this is the the really big question after an event like this. Um, And it puts everybody uh, in the West that wants to to punish Lukashenko um, in a bit of a bind. Uh, Basically, um, you know, Belarus is reliant, um, you you know, for external sources to fund its budget, to do all these sorts of things. It's, It's not really a state that can survive on its own. Um, but Russia has, you know, already strongly signaled that um, it will back up um, the, the Lukashenko, you know, political regime that's in place at the moment. It will continue to fund the Belarusian state. It will continue to provide uh, cover for Minsk on, on uh, you know, incidents like this. So it, it's really difficult to see what what the EU can do, what areas of leverage it really has over Minsk um, at this point. Um, and the, the likely answer is we're going to find out that there really are uh, no other areas of significant leverage, uh, that sanctions can be intensified, but that won't really uh, accomplish much. Uh, and the bigger issue will remain that, you know, with Moscow in uh, Belarus's corner, um, there, there really isn't anything you can do to impose real costs for actions like this. Uh, Dara, um, any short look at a map of Europe shows Belarus uh, slap bang between Ukraine and the Baltic states as well. So a lot of planes would potentially have to be diverted if they have to avoid Belarusian airspace to get to the Baltics. If I was one of the Baltic nations today, I'd be very, very worried about the intentions that this um, that this potentially leaves going forward uh, from not just from Belarus, but also from Russia. Russia's reaction, as you already alluded to, is absolutely key here and its reaction not only to Belarus and its support there of Lukashenko, but also its reaction how it moves forward now with its relations with the Baltics. Yeah, I mean, this is another key thing in that the Baltic states, would it be uh, home to a pretty lively Russian dissident community? Um, It's one that Moscow is uh, starting to be much more aggressive uh, towards as well. Um, And really, these factors are geographical. You know, there's Lithuania and Latvia simply can't change the neighborhood that they exist in or the airspace that they need to, to have an effective aviation industry. Um, so, the you know, in one sense, you can almost isolate uh, Belarus or you can avoid its airspace or you can put special measures on when it, it comes to, to dealing with uh, Belarusian air traffic control. Uh, but Russia, again, is just a much bigger kettle of fish because it's... It, it is such a large country, and it's so important for uh, for all of the, the the regional air commerce and uh, air traffic that we're going to see in that region. So, you know, it, if none of this becomes trustworthy, if if this is a, a region of kind of interstate operation, the the kind of safe transit of planes that becomes politicized or becomes something where 
we might see special operations of the kind that we saw over the weekend, um, that that becomes a lot more problematic for these small states. Sarah, can I can I just back up for a moment here? Look, however bad relations between the West and the USSR became, civilian airspace was largely protected and defended as a concept. Here we have a situation where it would appear that um, Alexander Lukashenko has overstepped the mark in what has been done here. Are we leaping to conclusions if we assume that there is already some coordination involving Moscow or some sign-off from President Putin? I suspect that President Putin just doesn't need this headache right now, given what we've already seen with the colonial pipeline shutdown. Um, Do you think that we're perhaps moving forward a little too quickly here and that this maybe just is the action of uh, President uh, Lukashenko without Moscow's approval? Well, it's not necessarily that that uh, Moscow has had to grant or withhold its approval. Um, it's more the idea that you know Moscow has staked quite a lot on Lukashenko and maintaining him in power, and has kind of made the strategic decision that this is how it is going to appease, approach Belarus in future, and that gives Lukashenko a significant amount of uh, leverage in that relationship or power in that relationship in that he can undertake actions that, that Russia might not sign off on if asked, um, but once they, they kind of become live, um, the Kremlin has little choice but to back Lukashenko up because it won't countenance letting him fall. So this is kind of an area where they've, they've been able to push the limits of, of what they can get away with. Um, and so far, it, it looks like for Belarus, you know, the, the calculation would have been right. They can get away with this, uh, this action. Um, and therefore, uh, you know, Moscow is simply just going to have to, uh, to stand by and, and, and back these acts, even if it's something that, yes, is more of a headache for the Kremlin than they, they'd really like at this point. I've not seen anything from uh, Mr. Peskov, who who is President Putin's right-hand man so far, and I haven't really seen anything uh, from President Putin um, via the um, uh, the shall we say the government-supported media in Russia at this stage. Uh, and yet, we've had plenty of comment from NATO. We've heard from Ursula von der Leyen. We've heard from the Americans at this stage. Does the does the fact that we've not heard anything from Moscow at this point suggest that actually they're scratching their head a bit as to what to do? I mean, partially, yes. Uh, but equally, for the moment, it's probably best to, to, to let this look like it's uh, something between Belarus and the West that, that Russia doesn't have to uh, make a strong statement about yet. It'll probably wait and see what the actual sanctions are, what the measures taken by the EU are. Um, it may have be having its own internal deliber- deliberations right now as to, to what message Russia wants to informally communicate to, to Lukashenko um, about all this. But um, for the moment, Russia doesn't really necessarily need to take a stance. It's not its airspace that's been infringed. Um, it hasn't been the active uh, participant in, in, in the actual... Uh, whatever you want to call it, kidnapping or, or uh, forced landing. Um, it can kind of just observe for the moment and wait for everybody to take that position before putting out anything 
uh, too firmly into the ether. Dara, are there links here, though, because the world has followed the detainment of Russian dissident Alexei Navalny and uh, the, the heavy-handed tactics that have gone into taking him back to Russia and, and detaining him uh, because of his uh, protest against Putin. In this particular case, I mean, the tactics uh, have also captured international attention around uh, this former journalist, uh, former editor. How similar are the, the two situations when we talk about how far a state will go to, to try and capture a dissident? I'd say they're, uh, I disagree, I'd say they're, they're not very similar at all, in that uh, Navalny, uh, for what it's worth, willingly went back to Russia and said, look, I know I'm going to be arrested when I get there, but he uh, got on a plane that went to a Moscow airport, landed, you know, through the, the, the usual means, uh, and was then arrested on Russian soil. Um, this it was an intra-EU flight, um, between Athens and the Baltics, which uh, Belarus effectively um, forced to, to interrupt its journey so that uh, Belarusian uh, security forces could remove um, somebody from the plane itself. Um, you know, Mr. Padasevich is not uh, willingly returning to, to, uh, to, to, to Belarus at this point. So it's, it's a really... It's it's a much uh, more a different incident in that kind, in that we're we're really not dealing with um, with the willing participation of 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 anybody on the the European side here. Dara, thanks so much for joining us uh, this morning and helping us uh, understand uh, what the consequences may be strategically. Dara McDowell, head of Europe and principal Russia analyst at Verisk Maplecroft. I just want to have a quick look at the Asian markets here because obviously we're we're still waiting for Europe to come into its trading session. Um, but for any indication that this is undermining confidence at the moment or this is having any impact on Asian market sentiment, I don't think that's clear at this stage. So we will continue to monitor this story. Obviously, it has very important strategic dimensions. But at this point, not sure that it's got a, a lot of impact as far as the markets are concerned. But that may obviously may depend on how it's perceived in Europe and what sanctions ultimately are imposed and how those are received. Uh, later this morning, Germana will be discussing the forced flight landing in Minsk with Nigel Gould Davis, senior fellow at the International Institute of Strategic Studies and former UK ambassador to Belarus. That's coming up at 10 Central European time. Also on the programme, a bipartisan group of senators pre present their proposals for an infrastructure bill as the deadlock on Capitol Hill goes on. We'll be right back. Ambition to me is about doing better. I think ambition creates a pathway. The best advice I can give someone starting off a career is don't have a career, have lots of careers, try loads of different things. Talk to people and put your ambition out there. I don't feel that I've hit peak ambition because it's a learning journey. CNBC is where ambition meets opportunity. What does living ambitiously mean to you? Hear it from our CNBC anchors, reporters and global business leaders on CNBC.com.
is a rare word in American politics at the moment, and that word is bipartisan. Yes, uh, US senators have unveiled a bipartisan funding package. It's not quite the same size Mr. Uh, Biden would like to like. It's, it's worth $300 billion, though, for highways, roads and bridges as lawmakers look to break the deadlock on a wider infrastructure deal. It comes after the White House lowered the cost of its own infrastructure package to a mere $1.7 trillion. That's down from 2.3. Uh, it's a billion in my read, but I'm pretty sure it's trillion dollars. However, Republicans have rejected the updated proposals. Uh, well, they can't all of them have rejected it. If, oh, anyway, anyway, uh, saying the two sides now seem further apart. Hey, well, that's so much for bipartisan, Karen. Jeff and uh, Steve, we're looking at the markets and I want to circle back to what we've got uh, on the Dow. This is where we saw some of the action Friday session, particularly around the heavyweights as we talk about a stimulus plan. You've got the likes of Boeing, Caterpillar. These were some of the big moving names, Caterpillar in particular, when we talk about with stimulus, but the banks in play too. And that was one of the supportive factors for the market. In contrast, again, one of the concerns around more stimulus is what the triggers could be for an inflation number. We're waiting for the PCE later this week, which is one of the indicators the Fed looks at when it comes to those pricing pressures. But technology stocks were under pressure. And you can see that impact of the Nasdaq over the Friday trade, also on the S&P 500. When it comes to the course of trade for the week, uh, despite that green on the Dow, it was still weaker down to the tune of just over half of a percent. And of course, uh, on the Nasdaq, uh, it was a better start during the week. We saw some green over the course of the trade. It was still ahead as we closed out the week, despite this red on the Friday. So a little bit in contrast, some of these numbers are the Friday trade in contrast to the week to date. The U.S. futures, uh, how we're setting up for the trade later on, you can see green. We're chasing uh, some uh, decent numbers across on some of these markets, 120 odd points to the upside for the Dow and the Nasdaq also tilting into positive territory. The Asian markets, another quick check on uh, what's been taking place there today. You can see Japanese stocks starting out to slightly firm. We've got a patch of red around Hong Kong. I dare say when it comes to these uh, Chinese markets, there's a lot of concern around the big sell-off we had in cryptocurrencies over the weekend and further regulation. So the market's just been a little bit tentative there. China itself, uh, just bouncing two tenths now. We're still uh, a little bit higher on Australia, despite some concerns there too about some of the big mining stocks. I think this is fascinating. This question of what the sell down in Bitcoin actually means for other asset classes, Karen, I think is something that we're going to spend quite a lot of time discussing this morning, not least when it comes to uh, the VIX. And I just wanted to read you this line. Slight stiffening in the VIX curve from the prior weeks, a stiffening which might have been more to do with Bitcoin than anything else. Those are not my words, but the words of Michael Purvis, who will be with us in just a moment to explain how he sees Bitcoin affecting other asset classes. But I think that gives you a clear sense of what the volatility index has done over the last week or so. We've had that that. that a 2.18% move here. In terms of the treasuries, uh, let's have a look at the uh, treasury curve for you. We are 1.6199%. And I think the, the just the underlying point to make is, even as uh, Karen points out the concern around inflationary pressures, and I think we see pressures in almost everything we buy at the moment here, we've had a near doubling in the 10-year note 
rate over the last 12 months. So if anybody tells you that the market is not reacting to inflation fears, I think that's wrong. You can clearly see that showing up in price movement and in the yield curve here in the States. But maybe the market is not getting carried away because the Fed continues to do I'm sure what they think is a very good job of suppressing concerns around inflation and therefore inflation expectations by continuing to argue that it is transitory, of course. Um, Here's a quick look at uh, Bitcoin and you continue to see the decline that we've experienced, uh, uh, a 22% drop in Bitcoin against the, uh, the dollar obviously following on and building on the move we had over the weekend here. As the Chinese authorities said, they will crack down on Bitcoin mining and trading in a bid to lower financial risks. Uh, This from the Financial Stability and Development Committee. Regulators in Hong Kong are now set to follow suit, it would seem. We've also seen a couple of the Bitcoin miners in China suspend operations. So it does look as though finally the comments we're getting from Chinese officials are beginning to have an impact on the underlying activity of the miners. Emily has more on the latest news out of Hong Kong on Bitcoin. Hong Kong crypto stocks under pressure as the city gets set to restrict crypto exchanges to professional investors. The Hong Kong government has taken note of the rapid change in digital assets, the huge fluctuation in prices, and the flurry of cryptocurrencies being launched. In response, following market consultation, cryptocurrency exchanges in Hong Kong will have to be licensed by the market regulator and will only be allowed to provide services to professional investors. Currently, dozens of crypto exchanges operate in the city using an opt-in approach applying for a license with the Securities and Futures Commission. Under Hong Kong law, an individual with a portfolio of 8 million Hong Kong dollars or 1.03 million U.S. will be considered a professional investor. The Financial Services and Treasury Bureau intends to propose the legislative changes in the coming 2021 to 22 legislative year to put these into law. I'm Emily Tan in Hong Kong. Back to you. Emily, thank you. Uh, Michael Purvis joins us then, the CEO of Tallback and Capital Advisors. Michael, I was just quoting you at the wall as we looked at the Bitcoin decline here. Let me put the question back to you then. What do you think the impact is on other asset classes at the moment of this decline in the value of Bitcoin? Well, I I heard you were commenting on it uh, just a minute ago. You know, on Wednesday um, or earlier last week, you saw this huge uh, precipitous drop from the 42,000 level where, you know, it, it ticked at 30,000 and a pretty dramatic drop. And you did see the VIX spike and the S&P 500 sell off and, and a general tensing up of assets there. But I'd also point out that that tensing uh, was really pretty short lived. And um, if you look at the S&P 500, it really kind of... Uh, respected the 50-day moving average um, into the end of the week, into the Friday close there. Um, so, you know, over the week, over the weekend, uh, there's been, you know, some more volatility within Bitcoin uh, there. And quite frankly, the technicals don't look too good for Bitcoin in the near to midterm, uh, at least from my, my perspective. And yet, you know, the futures are, are climbing higher here. So I think there's a little bit of visceral reaction. There's... Um, for that, uh, you know, uh, spike in the VIX associated with the Bitcoin dropping off, there's a huge wealth effect. I think it's also very unclear whether there's any real sustained 
um, market impact, though, uh, from from you know, if Bitcoin were to go to ten thousand, whether that would really have too much more of a sustained impact into um, risk assets like U.S. equities. I was reading an interesting um, piece over the weekend arguing that you fade the Wall Street bullish call to buy the dip. Now, Michael, this morning, I think your message is you'll be safe buying the dip. Why do you believe that's the case? I think, you know, just coming into this year, we had some overstretched conditions. They've, in many respects, have been overstretched. But I think there are so many uh, real money allocators that have um, checked all the boxes for uh, U.S. equities. And um, and there's a lot of capital uh, that needs to be deployed. And I do think that, you know, if you just look at the chart, you know, Throughout the year, that 50-day moving average, every time it hits it, it basically gets bought, regardless of what the cause is there. So, yes, valuations are stretched, and sometimes the technicals are stretched. But it's also, I would point out, a very healthy um, equity market here. And again, I'm discussing the U.S. equity market. The um, There's a lot of... Very, you know, when, a lot of rotation within the market underneath the surface. If one part of the market is overextended, um, that sort of sells off and in a very sort of natural and healthy way. And then some other part of the market will often lead the the charge higher here. I think it's also important to step back and realize that not only are rates um, consolidating in a, I think, a very um, risk asset friendly way, um, rate volatility continues to decline. Um, the dollar's back into its weakening trend. All those sort of macro boxes are checked for, I think, sustained risk on. And the earnings that the companies are putting in are very good. They're beating expectations. Um, and I think you're going to look at the uh, the next couple of quarters as more meet and beat um, against a backdrop where the Federal Reserve is really doing what it can to keep rates low and rate volatility low as well with the side of the Michael. impact of helping to reinforce the weaker dollar. Michael, if I may say something, like myself, you're no spring chicken. You've been around the market for the best part of 30 years as well. You've been at Warburg's, you've been at Merrill's. I just checked all this before I asked this question. You've never seen valuations on the S&P at these kind of levels, apart from before the dot-com bubble burst in 1999, according to Cape Valuations. According to just a a basic forward-looking PE, you're now asking viewers to buy markets at 22.5 times forward, as opposed to the 10-year average of 16 times forward. Surely that uh, is a red flag to our viewers over a longer term about making money out of these levels in the market. Absolutely. Now, those are very understandable questions and concerns. Um, but over the course of my career, I've also never seen uh, the 10-year uh, Treasury yield at 1.5% uh, either, nor have I seen sort of um, the S&P 500 anchored by these giant tech quasi-monopolies. Yeah, certainly in 1999, we had a lot of exciting tech names and stories um, uh, there, but they didn't have the um, strategic position and the reliability of those cash flows. And so I think that's a very, very important facet. And interestingly, it is sort of one of the reasons why the 10-year yield is so low is that there's so many deflationary forces being sort of pushed out of those big tech big tech companies. But we've never seen that before um, uh, there. And, and so I think right now, if you look at the relative valuation 
Um, if you look at the forward earnings yield relative to the 10-year Treasury yield, for example, um, there's still plenty of room for the S&P 500 and, and even the NASDAQ to, to keep pushing higher, again, with the view that these companies um, continue to meet and be. Um, one other point I'd also say is, is that the, the, you know, we haven't seen nominal GDP. If you look at 2021 and 2022 together, that's a very robust picture for nominal GDP that we really haven't seen until the 80s here. And so now we, we not only have the tech giants, you know, sort of quietly banging up fantastic earnings. We also have, um, you know, the other um, underappreciated parts of the market, you know, the value and cyclical economically sensitive parts that are going to put in, you know, extraordinarily robust earnings over the next couple of years. Um, ultimately, that will fade, of course, um, there. But uh, that that unique condition of having the backbone of the market um, with the big cap tech, but with this unbelievable um, surge um, in earnings from the value stocks, um, with the Federal Reserve that is saying, yes, we know there's inflation coming and that's fine and, and we're not going to um, increase in interest rates in, in the foreseeable future. Mike, I want to talk about that more because the central bank has tanked the markets before on the back of policy and communication. And if you look at the way the market is now positioned, uh, the Bank of America a survey recently found uh, a record 69% of respondents believe that the trend around economic growth and inflation globally is higher. So from here, it feels like there's a lot of noise for the central bank to navigate, just talking about tapering or eventually tapering and eventually lifting interest rates. Doesn't that mean there's just going to be more volatility around the markets anyway from here? I'm not so sure. Uh, you know, I put out a, a, a research note uh, at the end of March saying that the, uh, you know, kind of a non-bearish Treasury uh, recommendation um, uh, cautiously bullish, I guess you could say. In other words, that the the big um, gains for the Treasury bears have been sort of in, and that um, you know we're looking at more range-bound trading, at least for the foreseeable future. And that really simply comes down to the fact that the the inflation narrative that started the increase in Treasury yields um, was very obvious and palpable. All you have to do is go into a, a hardware store over here and you can see the inflation, or you can look at the two-year break-evens or the five-year break-evens there. But to, to really get the 10-year the up to 2.5% or 3%, you really either need the Fed to shift policy, you need European uh, sovereign yields to go to much much higher places, which we haven't seen in quite a number of years, um, or you really need to see conviction that the back end inflation story is going to a very different place. Um, that it's that it that uh, is it inherently relying upon a lot of very speculative assumptions about what happens to fiscal policy, uh, what happens to the pace of deglobalization, and so forth. So from my perch, I saw you know. When the tenure got to one and a half percent, which was including effectively four hikes before the end of 2020, uh, you know, really between 2022 and 2024, that that um, sort of that was really sort of factored into the curve steepening we saw there um, very easily. And even though Powell's still saying we're going to hike um, on an extraordinarily uh, careful. Uh, at a gradual basis, a lot more ECB-like, frankly, than than the old Powell Fed from 2018. So I, I was, um, I, I take Powell at his word that he's going to do move things in a very measured 
place. And I, wow. I look at the move index, which is the VIX for the treasury curve. And, you know, that thing, you know, moved, um, moved around a lot back in February and March, and it's really been coming in time and time again. And I think people um, who are very bearish of treasuries um, need to really be very um, thoughtful about what expectations for inflation um, are going to be needed to really get the treasury to sell off that much further. Um, right. Because so much of the palpable inflation is really priced into the uh-huh. curve right now. Michael, thank you so much for joining us today. Michael Purvis with us, the CEO of Torback and Capital Advisors. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on this show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.